Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. At Focus, if we boast, I certainly like it when people like things we do. But I hope that our boast never becomes about the quality of our sound system. And I hope our boast never becomes about, you know, how well we use technology. And I hope our boast never becomes about how many people we have and, and, and how many uh, important politicians are in our midst. I really hope that's not our boast because that would be not, we'd be, we wouldn't have a boast on there. Um, but I hope that our boast is always that Jesus is the head of our church. I hope that's our boast. That Christ was crucified and came to life. I hope that's our boast. And Romans 4, Paul is really going to address that. He's really going to kind of get into this idea of of no, no boasting. There's no room. There's no room for superiority. There's no room for elitism. There's no room for judgment of your fellow believer. There's no room for boasting that you're better than they are, doing better than they are. Anything. There's just no room for that. And remember what Paul's been dealing with is is he's been, the last couple of weeks, he's been speaking specifically to the Jews. Now, he's writing this letter to both Jews and Gentiles. There's this amazing mix in the church at Rome, and he's trying to help soften the edges and help them really unite around the gospel. But recently, he's been talking specifically to the Jews, and you'll remember last week, he spent some time saying, you are not more righteous because you received the law. Um, So we're going to start tonight where we have started every week which is with Romans 1, 16 through 17. We need yeah. to so now we're going to see if you have it memorized because the screen is obscured, right? So here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 4, Paul is going to focus on the latter part of these these two verses here. He's going to focus on the idea of a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That means it's faith at the beginning, and it's faith in the next step, and it's faith in the advanced step after that, and it's faith after that, and it's faith all the way. Some some, uh, Some translations actually read, a righteousness that is from faith to faith. Because the idea is the same. The idea is it's faith, and then the next step is faith, and the step after that is faith, and the step after that is faith. never changes. Your righteousness does not become faith plus something else. Faith is your baseline, and then you learn how to build a really good tower to climb up on for your next level. No, that's not what it is. It's not that faith is your good baseline, and then you learn how to live a really good life, and so that moves you up a level. No, that's not how it is. This is, this is sneakily more important than it seems to us sometimes. I think we don't realize how often we add to the idea that God's grace is all we need and our faith is the only thing that that, that, that grace flows through. And so Paul is really going to hit that hard because remember where he left off two weeks ago when we were talking, Paul finished by saying that a person is not justified by the law. The law does not make you righteous. It does not make you right. In fact, he insisted that the Old Testament, the prophets, and the law itself both communicated this all along. He insisted that the Old Testament has always said this, that the law is there to show you how condemned you are. 
The law is there to reveal your sin, but it is not there to make you righteous. He insisted that this understanding of the law doesn't nullify the law, but actually supports and upholds the law as it was always intended to be understood. So now he's continuing to address the Jews, and so he's going to address this question. They're going to say, yeah, but then why does it seem like our forefathers in the Old Testament, you know, Moses and Abraham and all these guys, it was all about the law. Why does it seem like that that's where their righteousness came from? And Paul says, tell you what, let's go back to the very beginning. Now, throughout a lot of scripture, the beginning of the Jewish nation is often referred to as when they left Egypt on the Exodus. And that's, that's fair, because before that, they weren't really a nation. They were a family, then they were slaves, and then they left Egypt and they became, for the first time, a people, a free nation. But Paul's going to go back further than that. Paul's going to say, where do we go back to? What's the beginning of our nation? And the beginning is... The forefather, the man through whom all the Israelites came, Abraham himself. And so Paul says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? So when, when you're looking at the flesh, right, for the Jews, their forefather, genetically, biologically, through the body, flesh, their forefather in that way, is Abraham. And he says, so then we look at our forefather, we look at Abraham, the person who, who is the, 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 the forefather, the founder of all of us, says, what, what did he say? How was Abraham justified? Was he justified by the law? He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Now this is interesting, because Paul says something and undercuts it at the same time. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, if God looked at Abraham and said, you are righteous because of the good deeds you've done, if he looked at Abraham and said, the things you have done are what makes you righteous, that's what justifies you, if that was true, then Abraham did do some good things, and in fact, he could boast. He could look at some of the rest of us and say, I did better than you. But then Paul says, but you know what, even before God, he could never even have boasted then, because he never did enough good deeds to match God. And he messed up a lot. Go back and read it. He messed up. So even if he could boast that he's better than us, he still couldn't boast before God, could he? It's not like he could ever go to God and say, hey, God, look how good I've done. So even if he were justified by works, he would come up lacking, wouldn't he? But really, Paul wants to make the more important point that it isn't that he could have been, but he just didn't make it. It's that that was never the point. He says, what does Scripture say? What does it say about Abraham? And then he quotes this, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's like God has a ledger, right? And there's all these deeds that we've done, and all this corruption that Paul's been talking about over the last three chapters before we got here, right? He's been really clear about that. And he has this ledger, and there's all these things here, and those are all credited as bad job. Bunch of Fs. It's going to say Ds, but that's too positive. Bunch of bad marks, bunch of demerits. But then it says that Abraham did a few right things, so those go on the other side. No, it doesn't say that. It says what was credited to Abraham's righteousness was not the good deeds he did. What was credited was that he believed God. He believed God, and God went, ah, that outweighs all of that. Now, what's interesting is when Paul makes this quote, when he quotes this, he knows that the people to whom he's writing, again, at this moment, he's specifically addressing the Jews. He knows they know the story 
but I don't know you know the story, so we're going to go back and look at the actual quote. You may know the story, but let's take a look. Genesis 15, 2 through 6. What happens is that this is when God has promised Abram, before he's named Abraham, but it's the same guy. He changes his name later, actually as an indication of the fulfillment of the promise God's about to make. God promises Abram, you are going to be not only a father, but you're going to be a father of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ancestors. Just an incredible number. We'll see that specifically here in a second. And Abram says this. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eleazar of Damascus. Eleazar, if you read the story of Abraham, is a good friend of Abraham. He's his servant, also was a good friend. He did a lot of things. They seemed to get along well. He seemed to really help out Abraham. Not sure he had choice who was a servant, but nonetheless, they were friends. But he, so he decides. So Abraham's at this place. He's like 100 years old, 90 to 100 years old. He's way up there. And he realizes, I'm never going to have kids. So I'm not going to have a legacy. I'm not going to have a sort of immortality through the generations. There won't be people who will remember me. I have built this estate. Abraham was a, Abraham was a very wealthy man and a very powerful man. He's so powerful and so wealthy that at one point he actually, his nephew gets kidnapped. And what he does is he goes and he finds five kings. Five kings. And he gets them to fight with him to rescue his nephew. That's how powerful Abraham was. He could draw kings together. So powerful, rich man but he's got no one to leave it to. And so he says to God, God, I'm sad about this. Nothing you give me is, is going to be, is going to remove the hole that I don't have a son to pass everything on to. I don't have a child to pass everything on to. So I'm going to leave it to Eliezer. He's the best I've got. I'll leave it to him. But it's kind of a shame. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but his son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Never mind that you're 100 years old. <laughs> We're going to make this happen. Never mind that Sarah is whatever, 90 whatever years old. Her womb is barren. She hasn't been able to have a child when she's young. The odds that she's going to have a child now that she's really old seem very unlikely. But this is what God says to him. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. You guys live in a great place. You live in New Mexico, and one of the things that makes it a great place is that when you walk out on a clear desert night, you really get to see stars. You really get to see stars. And think about those nights that you've gone out, and there have just been countless stars in your field of view. It's only what you can see, but they're uncountable. They're innumerable, literally. And this is where Abraham is, out in the desert. Abraham and God says, look up at the stars. And he looks up, and there's too many stars to count. And he says, look up at the sky and count, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Which I think is a rhetorical way of saying, I know you can't. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Not only will you have a child from your own flesh and blood, but I'm going to make you the ancestor to so many people they won't be countable. And then, we have this statement that Paul quoted. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. You do realize that's a, that's a, big, that's a big ask. That's a big belief. 
right? <laughs> you're not only going to have a child, you're going to have this many ancestors, you're going to have this many offspring. And Abram looked at his body, and he looked at his wife, and he looked at his time left on earth, and he looked at God, and he said, cool. Amen. I believe you. Amen. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. I wanted you to know this story because Paul knows that instantly he brings up that quote that that story is familiar to the people he's writing to. So I want it to be in the back of your mind also as we go forward. He's going to come back and give detail on this story, and now you'll know what he's talking about. But even as he doesn't give detail, you now are in the same place somewhat that the people he's writing to are. So you'll hear the things in the context that they would hear them. All right? Y'all good? Yeah. So in Romans 4, he goes on. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Simple statement, but let's think about it a second, because Paul's going somewhere really important with this. When you work a job, your boss does not pay you because he likes you. Your boss does not pay you because he's giving you a gift. Your boss is obligated to pay you. You do certain work, you earn certain wages. It's a transaction, and it's one where you deserve what you get. If you make $150,000 a year because you work at a job where that's what you should make, then there's a reason, there's a degree to which you can boast about that, if that's the most important thing to you. You can say, I earn $150,000 a year. Why? Because you earn $150,000 a year. I'm assuming you earn it. There might be jobs where you don't, but I'm assuming you do it at the moment. What you get, you earned. Even if you make $20,000 a year, you can still take pride in the fact that you earned that. You worked it, you got paid, it was a wage for what you did. But what Paul's beginning to explore here is the idea that our righteousness is not transactional. That God doesn't say, you earned your righteousness. God doesn't say to us, you worked hard at the law, and so you earned righteousness. Paul's going to give us a different understanding of righteousness. He says, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God. I really like the fact that Paul is hitting it hard, right? He could have said the one who works hard, but also trusts God. But no, he really, he wants to go as far as he can with his message. So he says, let's pretend there's someone who even doesn't work. They're not even following the law. He says, the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Who does God justify? The ungodly. This is like saying your employer pays the people who don't work. Instead of paying those who come to the job, he pays those who don't work. He says, that's how our God is. He says, our God is not justifying and giving righteousness to those who work for it, who follow the law, who do the right things to earn righteousness. He says the thing you have to wrap your mind around, Jews who think that you've got a little bit of godliness in you so that God gives you what you think you deserve, what you need to wrap your mind around is that God justifies the ungodly, so if you've been justified, it's because you were ungodly. Not because you were more godly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. The people who believe that God is a God who chooses, and here's the distinction, he's making a contrast between a work and a gift, isn't he? To say that God gives this to people who don't deserve it is to say what? 
He gives a gift. When you give a gift to somebody, it isn't about deserving. Otherwise, it's a reward or a wage. But when you give a gift, you're not giving to them because they deserve it. You're giving it to them because you want to, because you love them, because you desire to bless them. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've got to wrap your mind around this, you guys. You're really hanging on the idea that the law has justified you. But that just leads you to believe that our God is transactional, and all he does is look at what you've done and then give you what you deserve. But if you look back at the three chapters leading up to this, if God really gave us what we deserved, we're all in big trouble. Because what Paul has just finished saying in the first three chapters is what we deserve is wrath, condemnation, judgment. He says, so if that's what you want to see, that's what the law tells you. It condemns you. It brings wrath. You really want to remain in this transactional place with God. That's all you've got to look forward to. But for those who believe that our God likes to give gifts to those who don't deserve it, then that faith is called righteousness. That faith is called righteousness. Then he goes on. He's like, let's not just stop with Abraham. We see it with Abram, right? Abram didn't follow the law. As he's going to bring out later, the law didn't even exist at the time of Abram. But there's nothing in the story that tells us that Abram did something. We're just told that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what did he believe? He believed the promise God made him. Simple promise. Amazing, but simple. But now he's like, I know what you're thinking, though. You're thinking that was pre-law. What about after the law? So Paul says, well, what does David say? David comes after the law. David's an important person in our world as well. David is a pre-Messianic figure. Let's look at what he says. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Paul is about to quote Psalm 32. And I want you to notice as you read this, it's a really good reason he quotes it. Notice, I want you to count as I read through Psalm 32, these first few verses. I want you to tell me what are the things that the person who's being blessed does to earn the blessing. Okay, here we go. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. What does the person being blessed do in this passage? Get blessed. Sin, transgress, and get blessed. <laughs> do you see that? <laughs> this is a great passage for Paul to quote because this is the point he's making. Even David recognizes righteousness is not credited to him because he's doing the right things. It's all about what God does. There's nothing in here about what the person does. Everything in this passage is about what God does. Blessed is th are those whose what? Transgressions are forgiven by God. Not those who earn forgiveness. Not those who never transgress. Those who transgress and are forgiven are blessed. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Not those who cover their own sins. That's a terrible idea. It never works out, by the way. Not those who cover their own sins, but those whose sins are covered by God. Not those who never sin, but by those who sin and are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Again, it's all what God does. Paul is saying, David is saying the same thing. That the blessing, the, play, the, 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 the blessing, the righteousness, the justification, the things we get from God are gifts. They're not transactions. They're not things we've earned. What we've earned is to, is, to, is to be judged for our sins. What God grants is forgiveness. 
The rest of the psalm, it's interesting, Paul doesn't quote the rest of it. It's because it would confuse the, the topic. Not because it disagrees with what's said here, but because David is about to go off in a different direction. The different direction David is going is this psalm is written in response to when David realized how terrible his sin was before God with Bathsheba. This is a David who's understanding the depth of his sin, not treating it lightly. This is a David who's saying, my only hope is that God will be gracious because I can't undo what I've done. I can't make right what is wrong. I can't become different. I've done what I've done, and it hurt people, and I have no hope except a gracious God who chooses to give gifts to those who don't deserve it. You know, as Christians, too, this sometimes we have a hard time wrapping ourselves, our, our mind around this, that, that God didn't bless you and save you because you were just slightly more adorable than the unbeliever down the street. <laughs> he didn't bless you and save you because you tried a little harder than the unbeliever down the street. It's hard. It is so easy for us to get into a judgmental, superior, elite mindset, isn't it? And not only to look at unbelievers and think, well, they must have done something wrong for them not to be here, but even to look at other believers in the church and measure ourselves and say, well, I do this better than they do. The reason Paul spoke so much about stop judging people as, as believers in the church, stop judging other believers, isn't because those other believers don't deserve judgment, but because you don't have the right or the authority to judge them. <laughs> because you also are simply here because God is a God who justifies those who don't deserve it. He goes on. He says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now, to us, this seems like an obvious question. We're like, circumcision is such like a nothing. I mean, that's just a weird thing anyway. <laughs> Why would that be the sticking point? But please understand, for the Jews, this is the sticking point. For them, the act of circumcision, and not without cause. God's the one who told them, get circumcised. That will prove to people you're my people. So the act of circumcision became an identifier of their justification. It came, became a way of them saying, knowing even who the difference, who the justified were versus the unjustified. It became a really easy physical mark, at least for men. It did. You were circumcised, you were justified, you were uncircumcised, you were not justified. But see, Paul's already wiped that out, hasn't he? But in case you've missed it, he's got a really linchpin argument for them here, and it goes like this. Well, he says, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it before he was circumcised? I'm sorry, was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So here's Paul's point. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And guess what? He wasn't circumcised at that point. You know who that makes him like? The Gentiles. <laughs> oh, no, Paul, don't talk about that. That can't be right. Yeah, it is, says Paul. He was marked as righteous by God before he was circumcised. It's not faith plus. There's no room, says Paul, for faith, for faith plus. The Jews wanted to say, yes, we believe that, that believing in Jesus is required for salvation, but you also need to be circumcised. So those Gentiles, that's fine. It's faith that saves them, but they really need to get circumcised because it's faith plus, faith plus circumcision. 
Now, you might say, okay, we would never do that. And we wouldn't, because circumcision is weird to us. But what about the things we do say? Faith plus going to church. Faith plus being nice to people. Faith plus being woke or not being woke. People adhere to both of those views religiously. Faith plus whatever law your particular tribe gives you is what justifies you. And Paul would say, did Abraham have any of those things? <laughs> he did not. And yet it was credited to him as righteousness. So what is the point of circumcision then? What does it mean? And I've had people say the same thing to me. I say, and I want to say it clearly in case it's not been clear yet in what Paul's been saying, what I've been saying. What you do or don't do has nothing to do with your righteousness. Yeah, that wasn't a mistake. I meant it. Anne's acting surprised. She's heard me say that a million times. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for uh, you know helping me helping me here. What you do or don't do has nothing to do with your righteousness. You don't not make yourself more righteous by doing the right things. You don't make yourself more righteous by avoiding the wrong things. But the question comes up to me occasionally when I will teach. I teach a conference where I'm really strong on that. And I say that over and over. And occasionally people will come after and say, then why does it matter what we do? Well, in this case, they would say to Paul, then why does circumcision matter at all? Why did Abraham get circumcised? And this is what Paul says. He received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So he had faith. That made him righteous. Circumcision didn't make him righteous because it happened before he was circumcised. He got circumcised to show people the righteousness that he had received by faith. You know what Paul actually says? We're going to get to it in Romans 12, but that's a long way away, so I'm going to give you a teaser right now. What Paul actually says about doing the right thing? He says the reason you should do the right thing is because it shows people the righteousness you've already received. Not that it makes you righteous, but because it shows people. It's a sign, like circumcision was a sign. It's a seal. It's like... What's a seal? It's like someone puts a seal on something and you say, that's from the king. It's, it's like God's seal. That person's from the king. What you do doesn't make you righteous. It matters for, for a number of other reasons. But Paul is really clear here. It does not matter for your righteousness. This is so foreign even to a lot of us who grew up as believers. But that is what Paul, not me, Paul is saying. And he's saying it over and over, and he's going to keep saying it over and over. The good works you do, the obedience to God you show, the circumcision that you experience, it's all just a sign of the righteousness that you revealed that was credited to you by your faith. It goes on. He says, so then he, Abram, Abraham, as he keeps calling him because he does become Abraham, so then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. This is a tough one for the Jews. Now Paul looks right at the Jew, and he says, Abraham is the father of all those Gentiles. And they're like, wait, that was our ace in the hole. 
Think of all the, you, if you've read the Gospels, you've seen this. You've seen all the people who came to Jesus and said things like, Abraham's my father and that's why I know I'll be okay. Usually to which Jesus replied something like, the devil's your father, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> but, but what a shock for the Jews. He's letting, letting them keep their lineage as just their lineage. This is why he said at the beginning, by the way, by flesh, he's our forefather. Because now he's going on to say that in a much more important way, he's also the father of all those who are not circumcised who have faith. Of course, he's not leaving out the Jews. He says, and, yes, he is then also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he's saying, those who are uncircumcised but believe God, Abraham's their father. Those who are circumcised and believed God, Abraham's their father. The implication is, one, very easy for them. Anyone who doesn't believe God isn't circumcised. Abraham's not their father. That one they're okay with. That's all the non-believing Gentiles. The other heavy implication here is all those who are circumcised but don't believe God aren't truly children of Abraham either. In other words, what makes you a child of Abraham isn't your flesh. At the beginning, he made that caveat. But in reality, he says it isn't your flesh, it's your faith. And that includes all of us. It was not through the law that Abraham... Let, let me leave out a word here, because I, I want to add it in a second, but I want you to see the, the, the through line of this sentence first. It was not through the law that Abraham received the promise. It was not through the law that Abraham received the promise. Did Abraham get the promise because of the law? No, the law didn't even exist yet. Why did he get the promise? No, he believed after he heard the promise. Why did he get the promise? Because God gave it to him, right? That's the point. There is no why. <laughs> the only why is God. God loved him. God chose to give him a promise. So he says it was not through the law that Abraham received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So, yes, in one sense it was through faith he received the promise. That's how he accepted the promise. If you think back to the beginning, beginning of Romans when we talked about that whole Tim Cook million dollars, I know those of you here all remember that, so it's a good illustration because we all wish it had happened. Me too. But that Tim Cook gave each of us a million dollars. He didn't give it to us because we deserved it or needed it, but he gave it to us, and the only thing we could do was put it in the bank, and we didn't earn it by putting it in the bank. We didn't earn it by having an account. We didn't earn it by doing that. We just received it. That is what he says here, too. It's important to Paul that faith doesn't become a work here, either. Because it's not transactional. We don't become righteous by our works, even a work of faith. What happens is, of course he didn't get the promise through the law, he got the promise because God wanted to give it to him. And he didn't receive the promise through the law. He received it through righteousness. And that righteousness just came because God said, you believe me when I made a promise. That counts. But notice he says Abraham and his offspring. So he wants to point out that it didn't change after the law. It didn't change after Moses. All of the offspring of Abraham, the fact that we are here, by the way, he just extended offspring to all believers, right? So the fact that we are here as believers is because we have received the promise, not because we worked for it, not because we earned it, not because somehow in some wonderful 
weird reverse causality. We impressed God, so we went back in time and made a promise to Abraham. No, we received the promise because we were born. We received the promise because we received the promise. Because God gave it, because God gave it. So then he goes on and he says, For if those who depend on the law are heirs, if it requires following the law, if it requires the law to be an heir, well, then that means that the promise made to Abraham is worthless, doesn't it? Because Abraham didn't have the law to follow. And that's what he says. If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, but it's worse because the law brings wrath. He says, in fact, what we know, and we just talked about it in the first three chapters of Romans, what we know is that all the law brings is condemnation, judgment, and wrath. It doesn't bring justification at all. So if you're counting on the law to bring you inheritance, the two problems are, one, it means that the promise made to Abraham doesn't mean anything because it was made before the law and without the law. And number two, it's a problem because as far as we can tell, all the law does is bring wrath. So if we're counting on transactions, if we're counting on earning what we getting what we earn, what we deserve, then the promise that we'll get something better than we deserve is worthless. Because the law says you just get wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Abraham. I'm not going to detail on that one. We'll come back. To, that idea comes up again later, so I'm going to leave it, but it's a little confusing at this moment. But the basic idea is Abraham had neither transgress. He hadn't broken the law because there was no law. But neither had he fulfilled the law because there was no law. He goes on. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, that it may be by grace. I, I want to tweak one word here, and not because the translation's wrong, but because for us it's a little less clear, and there's another translation which is a little bit easier for us to work with. It's this word by. The word by comes in here twice, and it doesn't mean exactly the same thing both times, I don't think. And I think you can tell that by the structure. But to make it simpler so we don't have to diagram the sentence, I'm just going to change one of the bys to through. And then what it says is, therefore, the promise comes through faith so that it may be by grace. The promise comes by grace. The promise doesn't come because of faith. Faith does not create the promise. Grace creates the promise. What is grace? It's God's desire and God's power to do good to you. So God's grace creates the promise. Why does God make the promise? Because he loves you. Because he wants to do good to you. That's the only reason. Nothing to do with you at all. Not your faith even. Do you understand that? So when Tim Cook gives, up, gives each of us a million dollars, maybe one day he'll listen to this podcast and just decide to do it because it would be a nice whim. I don't really believe any of that's happening, but hey, who knows? So when Tim Cook gives each of us a million dollars because he decides to do it, what's interesting is, it is his grace, it is his desire to give us a million dollars that makes the promise happen. But it has to come to us through something. He can't simply say to us, hey, you have a million dollars. If he doesn't actually put it in our account, we don't have a million dollars. Now, I'm going to make it simpler. He doesn't have to write us a check. He can just transfer it electronically into our account. He can do it without, barely with our awareness. And so he just does that. He just transfers a million dollars in. But it's still got to have a place to go through, doesn't it? His grace, his desire to give us a million dollars has to go through the data. It's all data now. Money's all data. Whatever you think it is, it's just data. <laughs> so it's got to go through the data. It goes into the bank. It's got to go through the account. So we would say the promise is by the grace of Tim Cook, but it comes through our bank account. Similarly, Paul is saying the promise comes by the grace of God, not because of your faith and not certainly not because of your works, 
But if you have access through faith, it comes through faith. That's how you say yes. That's how you receive it. But do you see how far we've traveled from the idea that our righteousness comes by the law, by what we do? We've now removed it from us. It's not us. We are not in charge of our own righteousness. That's the part that sometimes rankles us. It comes through faith, and it comes by grace. It comes because God desires to give it, and the only thing we can do is say yes. Faith is just saying yes. It's just believing God's promise. God makes a promise, you accept it. He goes on, he says, that the, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. It may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who have the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. He's just tying it all up. He's saying this unbelievable thing to the Jews. Abraham is the father of everybody who has said yes to the promise of God, period. Period. You don't have to like it, but it's the way it is. And if they think right, they will like it. But at the moment, this is a little upsetting. It's a little difficult. I think this, this sentence is startling, but I hope you see as we've walked through it, it is in fact the natural conclusion of the argument he's been making. As Paul does, he's built it brick by brick by brick until he can say this thing that he knows they don't want to hear. It goes on, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And suddenly, a light bulb goes on, because isn't that a weird thing for God to say to Abraham, if all he meant was, I'll make you a father of one nation? It's right there! God said, I have made you a father of many nations. Wow. Son of a gun. Paul's right. It's way back there in Genesis. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Sarah's wife, uh, Sarah's wife. Sarah was the wife. Abraham's wife, Sarah's womb, was buried. It was dead. The chair, there was no family. There was no children. There was no offspring. And God brought one to life and said of the other, it is. Abraham said, you've given me no children. And God said, yes, I have. God. <laughs> because this is what God does. But it also, as the Jews are listening to this, they're thinking, oh my goodness, he's also saying that he's made Gentiles alive and children of Abraham. In God's sight, he says, Abraham is our father. And they say, according to the flesh, he's not. And Paul says, as he's going to say a lot in the rest of Romans, yeah, but who's right when there's an argument between you and God? If God says they're Abraham's children, guess what? He just made it so. He just made it so. They just are. And if you were dead in your sins, guess what? Now you're alive. You just are. I love, I love, this is one of the most beautiful sentences in all scripture. I just love the way this reads. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's what he said when he looked up at the stars. So shall your offspring be. But listen to this phrase. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. What does that mean? It means that Abraham didn't close his eyes to reality. 
He didn't say to God, oh, you're right, I'm mistaken. I have a lot of years left, and Sarah's womb is totally not barren. Everything's good. I was just overreacting. Of course, we'll have lots and lots of children. No, Abraham was like, yeah, that's impossible. I'm dead, essentially. <laughs> Sarah's womb is dead. We're not, the reality, the hope in anything happening the way it's happened all, you know, I've watched all my friends and all my family, and I know how the world works, and no one has children at this point. I have no hope. As I look at the way the things work in the world, I have no hope it will happen. He didn't, he didn't face denial. He didn't engage in just sort of wishful thinking. He realized where things were. He looked at the situation, but then he also looked at God. And he said, I got no hope here. But I believe God, and I hope that God can do things that nobody else can do, that don't happen in the world, that don't happen in the way they should. He goes on, he says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. He thought I was making that up. If you didn't, thank you, because I wasn't. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Understand Abraham's position here. He looked with open eyes at the situation in front of him. This is not about denial. This is not about optimism. This is not about magical thinking or wish fulfillment. It doesn't deny the size of the impossibilities in front of him. It doesn't deny the impossibility of the task. It's not about closing your eyes to reality, but it is about opening your eyes to the larger reality. It's about recognizing that God is bigger than all of that, and that there is no impossible in the world of God. Truly, no impossible in the world of God. God is more real than all the real things that get in the way. He chose at that moment to believe what God was telling him rather than what he knew, but that doesn't mean he discounted what he knew. It just means he knew God was bigger than that. It doesn't mean he closed his eyes to reality. It means he opened them to the larger reality that our God is a God of miracles, that he can do any blessed thing he wants to do. He believes the promise of God because he believed who God was. It's interesting as a, as a pastoral counselor, which I do very little of anymore, but in my early years as a pastoral counselor, that's one of the things you find yourself saying to people, is that they will say to you, hey, this, is, this thing is happening and I can't believe this person will change, or I can't believe that this person can forgive, or I can't believe that I can forgive, or I can't believe that God can resurrect this relationship, or I can't believe these things can happen. And if I would say to them, but God can do that, they would say, you're denying how hard this is. And very often I want to say, I'm not denying how hard this is. In fact, I'm with you. This is impossible. But God is bigger than the impossible. I'm not asking you to close your eyes to deny what's there. I'm asking you to open your eyes to the possibilities that God presents. Now, Abraham had a promise, and that is helpful. And I'm not saying that all impossible things we want to happen will happen. That is just wish fulfillment. That is just magical thinking. But the promises God makes, we stand on against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed. 
without weakening his faith. He faced the facts, the realities, but he still said God is God is God. And that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted God. You know, we don't have to get into it in detail, but the reality is that even the law itself comes back to this question. When you look at the law and you obey God, what you're saying is God's definition of the universe is bigger than mine, I believe God. God says this is wrong, even though it feels better to me to get what I want. God says this is right, even though it feels better to me to just do what I want. God says this is the way the law works, and this is the way the universe works, and I don't see it around me, but I believe God is God is God, and so I follow the law. Even the law has always been a question of faith. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But then Paul turns a corner. We've been talking a lot about Abraham, but just so you don't forget, I'm not talking about Abraham, I'm talking about you. He says the words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The, the way it's recorded in scripture, saying this was credited to him as righteousness, Paul says it's written that way so that at this moment, you'll connect it to the gospel. Paul does that a lot. And the only way to explain it is that the Holy Spirit tells him to. Because I don't think it's a good idea for me to read scripture that way. <laughs> to just decide on my own. This is what I think it should be now. <laughs> But I do believe that Paul had the authority to do that. And so he reads it back and he says, this is written so that you will understand the gospel. Plus, it's a safe bet because as Paul pretty convincingly writes, pretty much everything in the Old Testament is written so that you can connect it to the gospel. But I want you to think about what he's saying here. Paul says later that Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. So just as God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham said yes, and it was credited to him as righteousness, now the gospel comes along, and, Jesus, and God says, Jesus is my yes to the promise of salvation and righteousness and holiness and life and joy. All you have to do is accept the yes. The grace is provided by me, not you, says God. The righteousness is provided by that grace, by me, not you. And Jesus is the door to that grace, and all you have to do is say yes to my yes. If you think about it, salvation may be the biggest miracle. And I don't mean to discount that God can do all sorts of other miracles and will do other miracles and has done other miracles. I think he will and does, probably more than we notice. But I do want to say that salvation, it's easy to discount what an amazing miracle that is. It is indeed calling something that is not as if it is. It is saying to the decrepit, depraved, corrupt, human heart and soul, it is saying, you are now holy and cleansed. That's a miracle. It is saying to the dead inside human beings, you are now alive. That's a miracle. But these are promises God makes, not righteousness we earn. We aren't justified by the things we do. The life we're given, both the first one and the second one, are gifts from God. When you were first born, you didn't earn it. Can you all accept that? You didn't create it. You didn't make it happen. 
You didn't even have the ability to want it to happen. They don't believe we were all souls in heaven waiting for a body. You were just nothing. And then you were born. And it was a gift. And our second life. The life we receive in Jesus when Jesus says, what is dead is now alive. When he takes to the cross our sins so that our corruption is cleansed. And that he raises from the dead to bring us with him to make us alive. That's all a gift. It's not a transaction. It's not something you did. It's not something you earned. It's not something you deserved. You have got to get rid. We have got to get rid of the idea. If it lingers anywhere in the corner of our brain, we have to keep reminding ourselves that it is false. The idea that I am saved because I did any little thing that that unbeliever did not do. In the same way that Tim Cook gives me a million and gives you a million and you just never check your bank account. I don't get to boast about the fact that I happen to look in my bank account. That's a nothing. That's just acknowledging the reality of the gospel. I have to say, even when I think about salvation, as I look back in my life, I've been blessed to experience, to, to be witness to a number of salvations. And as I look back at all of them, I am increasingly convinced. I don't know how they happened. <laughs> I used to think that it had a little bit to do with the cleverness of the argument, the presentation of the gospel, the, the testimony of my life, the, 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 the emotion of the moment. I'm pretty convinced none of that had anything to do with anything. I witnessed this on salvation back here. I don't know how it happened. He was a mess. So were you. So was I. We were all wretches. Amazing grace is right. And yet we were changed, and we were saved, and we were brought to life. It's all a miracle. I'm not saying we shouldn't present the gospel well. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to help people move towards yes, but when it happens, it is a grace of God. It is a crediting of the righteousness of God to a person that 10 seconds before was not righteous. As I look at the relationships in my life today of people that I care about who need saving, I'm again struck that their only hope is the God who does the impossible. I'm tempted to think it can't happen. And then I'm reminded, if it ever happened, it can happen again. <laughs> because it's the same God. And it's the same grace. And it's what happened for us. God said, I will bring life from you. I will bring wholeness where you are barren. And you just said, please. And God credited that faith to you as righteousness. His promise of grace was able to come to us through that yes, but not because of that yes. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins to cleanse us, to bring justice, to make atonement. And he was raised to life again that we could be justified in our new cleanness, that we could live again, that we could be alive. He died and we with him. And what came up when we rose with him again was better, stronger, holy, and wholly different than it had been before. And to doubt that... Those moments, those days that you doubt your holiness, you doubt your righteousness, you doubt your salvation, you doubt your sanctification. I am sympathetic, but I also want to be super clear. That doubt is not born of meekness and humility. 
That doubt is born of an arrogance that says your corruptibility is greater than God's grace. <laughs> to add to the grace which God gave you or the faith with which you said yes, any requirement for that salvation is not humble. It's arrogant. It's to say that I can build on what God did better than God himself can build on what God did. Any sort of Jesus plus attitude to salvation is arrogant. It's saying the righteousness we have comes not from God's promise alone, but from a combination of God's promise and our mighty efforts. From our ability to follow our own law. Sure, it seems silly to us that circumcision would ever be seen as producing righteousness, but it's no weirder than the number of things that we add. Trying to get it right. Thinking right. Living right. Figuring it all out. None of that helps. Those things have value. But they do not make you righteous. They do not make you valid. They do not justify you. What we do like circumcision, ought to reflect what we've become. But it never makes us. And it never creates us. And it never identifies us. And no thing you do is ever, 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 ever credited to you as righteousness. Just believe God. It's that simple. And it's that profound. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.